Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today joined by a very special guest, Bern Hobart. Bern is a writer, a consultant, and an investor. Bern, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. So Bern, uh, we're going to get into a lot of specific topics, but first I want to ask a, a high-level question, which is uh, when you look at, at your writing, what, what, is the, what are the threads that you keep pulling, the, the questions that you're obsessed with answering? How, how do you tie these uh, threads together or explain it? So a lot of what I'm trying to do is, um, it's a really high, high bar, but I'm trying to look at the present the way that historians will look at the current era a long time from now when, um, when a lot of the biases have fallen away, when there's a lot more information, when a lot of the patterns that might not be obvious today are, uh, are obvious again. So that's a combination of figuring out what things are these new inflection points where the world has never been like this before and what things are actually just repeated iterations on the same old pattern. So you can look at um, social media, for example, and say this is totally new and unprecedented and is causing all sorts of changes in the way that human beings relate to one another. Or you can say that every new medium whether it's the printing press or um, mass media, like mass newspapers or radio, television, cable news, that all of those actually have a similar kind of effect. And if you can figure out what the transaction costs are, like how, how does new content get created? How does it spread? What new marginal costs and what new fixed costs are present with this new medium? Then you could start to figure out if it is in fact part of the same recurring pattern. So that's a lot of what I do. I, I try to find a lot of different analogies. Um, it's it's often really fruitful to look specifically at early stage tech companies. They're really rich in analogies because they're really fragile. They're really vulnerable. They have to change really fast in response to economic conditions. So they're sort of a, a petri dish for just seeing how institutions have to evolve under extreme selective pressure. Totally. One thing you're, you're obsessed with, you're, you're writing a book about is, is productivity growth. So, so uh, I, I want you to sort of uh, share with us some non-obvious ideas uh, around either one, what, what causes productivity growth? I mean, more broadly, uh, has productivity growth slowed down? Uh, if so, why? Uh, to bring up you know, Robert Gordon's big question. Um, and at the same time, another question you're obsessed with is what makes certain industries uh, productive for so long? Yeah, so one of the frustrating things with looking at productivity growth, um, my co-authors and I see this over and over again, is that there's never one answer. There's never one industry. It's often that there is... There's a discovery that has non-obvious potential. So if you look at the early days of um, transistors, the original New York Times headline said, this might have applications probably in hearing aids. And it turned out to define a lot of the second half of the 20th century. So um, the, the impact was non-obvious. But a lot of productivity growth does consist of taking something that has worked in one field, deploying it into something adjacent, um, when when it gets more widely deployed, it affects the cost structure of other adjacent industries, and so you have these continuing knock-on effects. So you 
if you're trying to maximize the growth in productivity, you do want to find these little isolated inventions that have a lot of effects on a lot of things adjacent to them in the supply chain and then encourage them to grow. In terms of where productivity growth comes from, a lot of it seems really coincidental, seems really um, historically contingent. So if you look at something like um, the Manhattan Project, there a lot of things had to go right in sequence for that to happen. You had to have um, the U.S. out of the war, but very paranoid about the war. You had to have this flow of intellectuals um, fleeing Europe, and you had to have a lot of them come to the U.S., and then you had to have a few people realize that this was important, realize that this could be done, and concentrate as many geniuses as possible into some tiny isolated area where there was literally nothing to do other than perform this deep fundamental research and quickly apply it to building a bomb. So like when you when you look at the history of the Manhattan Project, there are just all of these weird veerings and course corrections. Like there was for most of the Manhattan Project, part of the recruiting pitch was we're going to use this to stop the Nazis. And then at some point it became obvious to more and more participants that that actually wasn't going to happen and that we were probably going to use the bomb on Japan, but we weren't really using it to defeat Japan. That was going to happen inevitably too. We were actually using it to intimidate the Soviets. And since a fair number of the people involved were at least somewhat sympathetic to socialism and communism, this actually created a lot of internal tensions, which post-war spilled out in a different way. But it's it's easy to imagine a lot of alternative scenarios in which the bomb didn't quite happen or it happened at a totally different time or was actually done by a, a totally different group. Everything had to happen in the right sequence for, for that to happen. So if you're trying to plan around creating a transformative innovation like this, part of what you have to plan around is that the, the circumstances will change and that the optimal behavior is going to depend very much on those rapidly changing circumstances. You, you have this epic uh, 100 uh, tweet tweet storm on globalization as well as, well as a bunch of writings on it. Uh, Peter Thiel seems to believe that productivity is somewhat inversely correlated with, with some elements of globalization, maybe some elements of free trade immigration. I'm curious if you can uh, unpack his, his belief to the extent that you know about it. Mark Andreessen would take the opposite uh, on that although they agree a lot, they disagree there, where he would say, uh, you know, uh, China and America are a acting against their own interests and against their own economic interests, uh, to, to, even for the people they're purportedly trying to help to the extent that they restrict uh, borders or, 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 or trades. Uh, how do you edit my characterization of, of the two beliefs and, and what, what's your view? Well, not to speak for either Taylor or Andreessen, but um, they are, they're both right in a sense that Globalization is economically both a, a complement to productivity growth and a substitute for it. So it's a complement in the sense that if you have a larger market for any category of goods, you have better economies of scale, you can produce more copies of it. And that's especially important for any kind of good that is capital intensive at the start and has low marginal costs. That's uh, software is the obvious example, but the a lot of uh, a lot of components in smartphones and other electronics, the, the economics are driven by the fact that there are so many billions of people who will buy 
at least one smartphone, at least one computer. Um, not quite as many people will be buying drones, but a lot of the components that drones are using are, are available and cheap because of the smartphone supply chain. So in that sense, globalization does actually drive productivity growth because it allows you to build much more expensive infrastructure knowing that you can amortize it over more final users. But it's also a substitute in the sense that if you have a choice between directing economic resources at something that is uncertain because it hasn't been scientifically proven to work or it may have been proven to work in theory, but you don't know, you know, the cost has to go down by a hundredfold and you can plausibly get the cost down by tenfold. You really don't know where you're going from there. So that would describe things like the semiconductor industry in the 60s. Like it, it was not really economically feasible to have a chip in every consumer device at the time, but it was pretty feasible to get a chip into a lunar lander. So um, you, you basically have this trade-off where in, in really rich countries, we can either do the uncertain thing with an uncertain outcome, or we can attempt to invest in getting other countries caught up to our level. So you really, you don't know if the flying car industry will be a big deal in the US. You do know that if China and India and Africa continue getting richer, that a lot of regular cars will need to get sold in those countries. And so that's, that's an easier bet to make. It's a lot easier to just look at where they are compared to where the US was in say 1920 and then extrapolate forward. But where that gets really challenging is that we're not just constrained by technology and determining what we can do, we're also constrained by the raw physical inputs that determine how much it costs. So if you get everyone up to U.S. standards of living and U.S. standards of driving, you end up consuming, I think the stat is something like two and a half times as much oil as we produce. And oil production is extremely inelastic um, once once the Saudis have, have opened up their spare capacity, which is like a couple percentage points at best of global oil production. Uh, so, so a the narrative makes sense at this micro level, where you say you look at U.S. cars per capita, you look at India's cars per capita, and you say if India catches up to the U.S., that's a lot of cars, it's going to be a big business. But then, if you try to apply that reasoning everywhere, you end up getting to well, in this scenario, oil costs three hundred dollars a barrel, and there's a global depression because of that. So at some point, something has to break down. At some point, you are actually reliant on some kind of transformative technology. So, uh, to, to reframe, do you do you buy the argument that uh, the Patrick Carlson, Michael Nielsen argument that science, the rate of science, uh, has slowed down or improvements, uh, or the or, or the Robert Gordon argument that you know since the 1973 or 1974 productivity is slowing down, and if so, why is that happening? Is it is it Gordon's argument that the low hanging fruit has been picked? Is it Peter Thiel's argument that we're less ambitious? Uh, is, is it something else? Um. Because it's so dependent on these discrete areas of innovation, it's really hard to come up with a sweeping generalization. Like there might be 10 or 20 or 50 separate reasons. Maybe it's that there were specific really brilliant people who happened to be born in the 20th century or late 19th century and they did their work and they died. And so now we're slowing down. There's an argument that um, I don't know who has articulated it better than uh, Scott Alexander at Slate Star Codex, where he he talks about how the more advanced things get, and this this ties into low hanging fruit. That 
the more advanced the state of the art is in any given field, the more of your time you have to spend just getting caught up to what's most advanced. And if you're considering things like mathematics and physics and computer science, a lot of the really big accomplishments are done by people who are extremely young. So if you, if your peak creativity and peak mathematical rigor is when you're 25, but you don't actually learn enough to contribute to the state of the art until you're 30, then we we do end up missing a lot of those innovations. And of course, people can continue contributing throughout their lives, but there is just a, a pretty distinct pattern of slowing down, and especially in um, in pure math and physics, that slowdown happens from a pretty early peak. It happens in other other fields too. Um, Ronald Coase, probably my favorite economist, he wrote his most important work, I think, when he was in his late 20s and he was still teaching in his 90s. He talked about how weird it was that he would talk to grad students who were the age that he was when he wrote this, um, he wrote the theory of the firm, and they would ask him about something that he wrote when he was 27. And of course, he still knew what it said. So it wasn't like he was getting all these really tough questions he couldn't answer. But his contribution happened then, and a lot of the rest of his career was continuing to work on the implications of this one sweeping theory. Is cost disease the reason why uh, education, or best, best explanation for why education, healthcare, and construction costs uh, uh, keep rising uh, among other certain industries, or, or what's your best take? Cost disease is a part of it. I suspect that regulation is um, a bigger part in in construction costs um you can certainly see that if you compare really similar construction projects in the u.s and other countries so things like infrastructure we're just really bad at producing infrastructure at reasonable cost compared not just to places like china and india but also a lot of uh, a lot of europe so we spend a lot more than the swiss for example in building tunnels and roads and things like that even though they uh, they clearly don't have a labor cost a significant labor cost advantage compared to us in fact believe in um, in gdp per worker hour terms they're actually more expensive or they're the, the swiss labor is better compensated than us labor so clearly um, education or regulatory or sorry uh, <laughs> Regulation or regulatory capture from unions, landlords, et cetera, is, is one driver. With education, um, there, there's one sense in which a lot of education is, is signaling, but it has to be dressed up in skills acquisition. So basically, the, the most important thing that Harvard does is tell you that you have been admitted to Harvard. You can take classes and learn a lot. You can also skip a lot of classes, not learn much of anything, and get most of the benefit, although less than you'd otherwise get. And then I mean, higher education seems like a big deal. It's certainly a big deal in, in the discourse because a lot of people who work in media, A, went to really good schools, and B, make less than almost all of their classmates. So there's a sort of intra- intra-elite class war between the people who went to Princeton and then went to work, went to write for the New Republic versus people who went to Princeton and then went to work at a private equity firm or went to work at Facebook. Um, those people really hate each other and then, um, or at least really resent each other. And caught in the middle is the average American who is finishing high school at an okay high school, getting some college, possibly a degree, but is not 
not really part of this elite. So that segment of education is, um, is more significant in the sense that it touches a lot more people, but also less significant in that it's, it's not entirely clear what the marginal benefit is. It's not entirely clear what the purpose of a lot of that education is. Like if you're, if you're just trying to solve for what do we optimize for in K through 12 education, you'd say that it's, it's a lot closer to a jobs program and a daycare program and that the actual building of human capital is pretty incidental to the core purpose of the institution. We're both in a, in a Peter Zehan a, a, a chat group. Uh, so Zehan's view of the world, to, to clearly simplify, is that uh, instead of focusing on things like uh, culture or governance in terms of determining uh, the, the strength of, of a country or the future of it, or, or even understanding its history, we should look at uh, geography, we should look at demographics, and we should look at uh, energy. Uh, do, uh, well, one, would you edit my characterization? Two, do you think he underrates uh, governance and culture by not, by not focusing uh, as much as the other three? Uh, and three, where, if at all, do you disagree with Zehan and his uh, characterization of history or, or predictions for the future? Yeah, so Zehan is great. Um, he is clearly a geography nerd, and it's just infectious. So I like that about him. Demographics, somewhat somewhat underrated feature and we can look at that both by looking at dependency ratios which are the obvious way to look at it so as the world ages you have fewer people in the workforce relative to the total number of people if more of those people are old versus young you can also have arbitrarily high healthcare costs since old people at least in um I guess they, they do this everywhere. I was going to say in the Western world, but I think it's everywhere. Old people are more likely to vote, so they actually have an outsized influence on policy. So you can quickly end up in this sort of heat death scenario for a country where all of their incremental economic resources are devoted to extremely expensive health care for the old, and those people have an outsized influence because they are much more likely than average to vote. I believe voter turnout for over 65s is somewhere on the order of 75 or 80 percent and then it's um around half that for the youngest cohort so um that part is true geography definitely true like there's this sense in which the world has gotten really dematerialized where a lot of the jobs are these service sector jobs you could theoretically do them from anywhere but all of that does depend on physical goods and on a lot of physical infrastructure, whether it's the computers you use, the internet that you use to connect to other people, or just the transportation networks and the manufacturing supply chains that get you the other goods that you actually need to consume. So it is, it is always easy to talk about the economy becoming a services economy. You can look at some very small scale examples of countries that have a largely services-based economy. So you can look at places like Singapore or Dubai, and you can say that is the future, but these are all really small, and they do have to import a lot of the goods that they depend on. So um, they can be a services-based economy, but if they're cut off from access to manufacturing and agriculture, uh, the whole system quickly collapses. Uh, Zehan has done a really good job of talking about energy and particularly the implications of fracking. So my view is that the U.S., deficit in oil production was basically tying the global economy together in a really significant way in the 90s and early 2000s. We were, we were importing a ton of oil. It was mostly from the Middle East. So we had to 
A, keep the Middle East very stable, and B, make it possible to ship goods, ship oil from any port to any other port anywhere. And because um, you can't, you can't really protect one set of shipping without protecting all shipping, it ended up being this indirect subsidy for exporters. So part of the U.S., part of the side effect of the U.S. dependency on the Middle East for oil was an implicit subsidy for the um, East Asian export-driven economic success stories. Uh, some of that, some of that export-driven growth started a little bit earlier. Some of it was indirectly subsidized by the Vietnam War because the U.S. Sh- switched to using shipping containers uh, to supply Vietnam. So a lot of ships leave Los Angeles full of equipment. They get to Vietnam. They empty out all the equipment, and now they're empty. So um, the the market clearing price for having those ships stop by South Korea or Japan or Taiwan is quite low, ends up subsidizing a lot of those countries' manufacturing bases. Um, that, that dynamic, you could say that it really started in the early 1970s because before, before the 1970s, the U.S. was fairly close to energy independence. We actually restricted oil production in Texas. So there was this era from about the 1930s to the early 1970s where the Texas Railroad Commission played the role that OPEC has tried to play more recently, where they would cap oil production when prices got too low. If prices got really high, they would allow more production. And eventually they got to the point where they were not restricting production at all, and the U.S. was still running an oil deficit. We were able to change some of how our economy operated in response to that. So oil used to be a larger component of the electrical grid, and a lot of that disappeared. We used to have much less efficient cars. A lot of those cars got junked in the 70s, replaced by much more fuel-efficient cars in the 80s, 90s, and 2000s. But we were still net dependent on oil just because we're a big country and we did not have enough access to oil on our own. Or um, put another way, it was it was cheaper for Americans to get access to oil via the Pentagon and State Department than it was to get access to oil through oil majors and wildcatters drilling for oil within the U.S. Uh, Zayan has a book coming out uh, fairly soon uh, called The Disunited Nations, where I think he calls out uh, Turkey, Japan, Argentina, and maybe one other as, a, as, as countries that are going to have uh, big changes. Uh, you just had this big threat on, on globalization. What, what are your predictions for the next decade of, of, of globalization? Do you, like Zayan, do you see great global disorder with the U.S.? retreating and side question if so are you uh you know a bitcoin hodler <laughs> or is it the future for a store value like uh, like bitcoin so um i'll i'll try to answer that in reverse order i may not recall all of your questions by the end i do own bitcoin i do view it as a potential reserve asset you're essentially making this low probability high reward bet that Bitcoin will eventually be treated as a store of value analogous to gold or the dollar. It has a lot of disadvantages with respect to those currencies right now, but it's also a lot cheaper. So um, it ends up being a fairly a pretty fair deal, but um, certainly shouldn't be a huge chunk of anybody's portfolio unless they're they're designing their portfolio around making a political statement. Um, in terms of the future of globalization, it. History sometimes moves surprisingly slowly. So 
in one sense, you could say that the, the globalization as a force peaked somewhere, somewhere between the first and second Gulf War. So the first Gulf War, the U.S. was intervening in the Middle East basically because Iraqi tanks were very close to being able to seize Saudi oil fields. Um, ostensibly, we were liberating Kuwait, but that, that doesn't quite make sense as a justification, whereas keeping Saudi Arabia safe actually makes a ton of sense from the U.S. perspective. Um, 2003, though, was sort of when we started buying our own propaganda about the purpose of U.S. military intervention, where because we were so good at describing Machiavellian behavior as if it were principled, we actually started doing things that were principled to a fault. And um, sort of we sort of reversed it where we had this more, there was like a semi-principled view that Iraq is just a really bad actor on the global policy uh, on the global stage that that they they should uh, it is a risk to the Middle East for them to develop chemical and biological weapons and potentially other other weapons of mass destruction but um, we but also that it's just a good place to liberate like if you read a lot of the, the Hitchens articles about Iraq it's mostly about how they don't have elections and they're Really tough on the Kurds, and we've got to make them cut it out. Um, so we sort of we sort of bought into our own propaganda there. And um, if we'd been more cynical, we probably would have left them alone and sort of let Saddam let Saddam do his awful thing very far from us, which would have little to no effect on us. And at some point, um, as many governments in that area do, it, his government would have collapsed. Yeah. Uh, Tyler Cowen recently had a post calling uh, for state capacity libertarianism. Some people saw that as him sort of uh, surrendering or surrender of the libertarian uh, vision. Uh, so others saw it as a more helpful transformation into you know uh, something like Singapore that, that's perhaps more more realistic. How, how, how did you how do you view that? Singapore is a tough example to use. I like I like Singapore a lot. I think they've done just an incredible job at what they've done. But it is a model that scales to the city level and doesn't scale especially well past that point. To look at models that scale to a national level, you'd want to look at countries like Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, and to a lesser extent, China. You don't want to copy blindly everything that they do any more than they copied blindly everything that the U.S. did. But those countries do demonstrate that you can have this very state-directed model that at least for a while is able to put up really impressive results. But when you dig into why that was, and you start to realize that the U.S. and Western Europe can't really copy it, because part of, part of what was really distinctive about these countries is that the, the government bureaucracies that were making a lot of their industrial policy decisions were very high status, very prestigious jobs. They were very hard to get into. Um, both South Korea and Japan had a civil service examination for the top industrial planning jobs. They both had the same pass rate, which was 2%. So if you imagine a, uh, a U.S. government that's actually able to have a, uh, a test where 98% of people can't, can't even pass the test, and the remainder are in this sort of work hard, play hard atmosphere where they are they're constantly challenging one another to accelerate GDP growth. You can sort of hypothetically imagine the US being able to execute an industrial policy like that. But Japan had the advantage that they could see what the US had done, they could see what missteps the US had made. And since US labor was quite expensive at the time, they could actually 
they could actually help U.S. companies or um, at least U.S. consumers substitute some of their demand for manufactured goods. So instead of expensive shirts made in the U.S., you could have cheap shirts made in Japan. Uh, in South Korea's case, they were able to not just take advantage of the the general history of economic development, but very specifically catch up to Japan. In some cases, they did this indirectly by just looking at the kinds of things Japan had invested in and investing in similar things. In some cases, they did very directly. So South Korea actually negotiated a reparations deal with Japan after World War II, where one of the conditions of it was that a Japanese steel company would help the South Koreans start their own steel industry. There's this anecdote in um, one of the books about um, the Park Chung-hee era, where I think it's called the Park Chung-hee era, so that makes it easy. Um, the the foreman at that factory would lecture the workers every morning and tell them that national honor was at stake when they're when they're building this new steel factory, and that if they can't hit their deadlines, they might as well kill themselves. So you have this um, extremely fierce bare knuckles competition, but it doesn't rise to the level of military conflict because the U.S. has a, a veto over any U.S. allies getting into a military conflict with one another. Um, you, you could actually make this sort of Freudian argument that they're, they're sublimate, sublimating this um, actual military and diplomatic rivalry into an economic rivalry, and that it spurs both sides to greater achievements. And in that case, maybe the U.S. Um, the U.S. could get a similar motivation from ratcheting up paranoia about China. But going back to going back to the lessons of um, of that development process versus the U.S. and considering that in light of state capacity, it is it, Tyler Cowen is right that an American should perform more libertarian solutions because our government is just not as competent, and we are a much more complicated country because we're a big country. We have. Um, not just a lot of capital, not just a lot of human capital, but we actually have a lot of natural resources too. So there are a lot more levers for different American companies to pull. Like no, no industrial planner would have been able to figure out that fracking was a good idea. That took a bunch of completely crazy gamblers in, um, in Oklahoma and Texas who were just willing to constantly roll the dice on new processes and then a bunch of equally aggressive junk bond traders and equity investors who were willing to stake those companies as they, as they increase their production. That's, that's not something that industrial planners are very good at. Um, industrial planners are good at it or can be good at looking at an existing productivity roadmap, especially trying to figure out where, what sectors a given country is getting less competitive in because they've gotten so rich that they they can't afford labor-intensive industries. And um, that was that's part of the Japan, South Korea, Taiwan story. It's also part of the China story, where a lot of Chinese growth was driven by the fact that Japan, South Korea, and Taiwan had gotten so rich that wages were too high for them to support a lot of low-value-added industries. And those countries were generally running export surpluses. They had excess capital to invest. So China allowed them to bring in capital, use it to hire workers, have those workers do electronics assembly or textiles or furniture manufacturing, and then export that to wherever. It's, it's not a pattern that can be easily repeated now because there isn't really anywhere for those low-value and added industries in China to go, uh, at least not at the same scale. 
what is the future of the U.S.-China relationship? Obviously, a big question. You're, you're looking a lot at the, at the Cold War, or, or, or you're about to. Are there similarities that, uh, between the U.S. And, and Russia that will uh, uh, be mimicked in the U.S.-China relationship, or, or how do you see that evolving? Um, that is a question I'm still working on, because you can have these very different visions of the future, um, you can have a view that China, as they get richer, they get more normal. You can have a view that China is getting rich in order to not fit into the global order. So you sort of you have to answer that question first, and to answer that question, you have to ask what will the U.S. do in response. To answer that question, you have to have an understanding of Donald Trump's psychology or or that of whoever his successor is. So you end up with a lot of degrees of freedom when you're making predictions. I would say that basically any, any prediction you can make about the future of US and China relations is going to be somewhat defensible. It is just really hard to figure out exactly which of those visions of the future ends up being correct. So right now I would say it is, a, it is an interesting problem because it's so hard to come up with a good coherent answer. What's the right uh, or wrong lesson that people take from the East Asian miracles, or or what do we misunderstand or, or not appreciate uh, as fully as we should? We misunderstand how much of it was dependent on where the human capital was in those countries, and also how much of it was dependent on these one-off effects of developments in the U.S. So it's the East Asian miracle would not have happened the same way if there hadn't been a Cold War, because that would have meant that the U.S. did not have this incentive to provide defense for these countries. Um, it also would mean, as I mentioned earlier, that there wouldn't be empty container ships that were going right past those countries on the way back to the U.S. Um, looking at those countries themselves, just the fact that they um, they were selecting such smart and hardworking people to work in in their government ministries, not something that we have duplicated, something you would have to duplicate to try to copy their successes. And then there are all these little edge cases and details, like there's a certain level of corruption that is actually good at lubricating economic growth. Um, I believe it was Samuel Huntington who said that there's, there's only one thing worse than working, than living under an incompetent and corrupt government, and that is living under an incompetent and thoroughly honest government, because at least in the first scenario, you can pay someone to let you do the thing that it makes sense for you to be able to do. Um, Japan and South Korea both certainly had a lot of money leaking out of these state subsidy programs in various ways. Part of how they designed a lot of their program, a lot of their subsidies was around trying to, trying to limit the scope of this corruption. So they would do things like um, export subsidies where if, you're, if you just subsidize a company, then they have an incentive to collect subsidies. If you subsidize exports, they actually have to be competitive with products that are being made in other countries or there's, there's nothing to subsidize. So if you, just, if you tell a Japanese auto manufacturer, we will pay you 10% of the value of every car that you're able to sell outside of Japan, they have to at least have a car that is close to being viable without those subsidies. And if you subsidize multiple companies in the same industry, such that they're all competing not to, they're competing to get the largest share of subsidies, but the only way to do that is to get the largest share of sales outside of that country. 
then you do give people an incentive to do what you want them to do, which is build products that are interesting, that are, that are worth buying on the global market, not just locally. Um, they also did a lot of indirect subsidies to the local market, like Japan still has these extremely strict emissions tests that basically force Japanese car owners to sell their cars after a couple of years. So a lot of the cars end up getting shipped to poorer countries in, um, in Asia. Um, I forget which model of car it is, but like, there's some car that is totally ubiquitous in Mongolia because that happens to be where a lot of the cars that are bought by Japanese consumers new get shipped in, in three years when they no longer pass the emission standards. Two last uh, trade questions. There, there was sure. anti-globalization uh, sort of you know uh, protests in, in in the late '90s, Battle of Seattle, et cetera, at the IMF, uh, lots of other things, and then of course uh, you know retreat to nationalism uh, as opposed to globalism in in, in sort of uh, mid two in two thousands to now. Uh, in both cases, were 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 these uh, protesters acting against their own interests, or did they simply have uh, d different values, or, or to what extent of each? And then two, if you were running our, our trade policy uh, or, or Trump's trade policy, uh, what would be different substantively, not not stylistically? Um, it, you know, I think you've written that the trade deficit isn't necessarily as big of a problem as, as we think of it, or more precisely, that solving that problem creates other other additional problems. Sure. So on on the pro on the WTO protests in the nineties, um, a lot. If you look at the pictures of those protests, people actually seem more upset about environmental issues than anything. Um, there was this sort of vague sense that the WTO was a bad organization, but it was really hard to tell exactly what people were upset about. So some of it might be that there's, there's this political coalition of various groups who would be skeptical of globalization. Um, a lot of them would have been blue-collar workers. Some of them would have been young people who are skeptical of big business or who are concerned about the environment. Um, you might have had people who uh, might have had executives in U.S. industries, U.S. manufacturing industries who are just worried about competition from overseas. And of all those groups, the group that's most likely to get in a van with a bunch of friends and drive to Seattle so that they can throw bricks at the police or something, that's going to be the young people. So to some extent, the people who are actually there on the front lines are not as representative of the political interests that were at stake. Uh, and then a lot of the a lot of the debate in Washington was a lot more uh, a lot more attuned to the needs of a U.S. corporate executives and b white collar or blue collar workers who were worried that their jobs would go away. Um, in many cases, they were they were quite correct to worry. Within U.S. big business, uh, I think more people were tempted by how profitable China could be. Um, compared to how many of them were worried about how damaging a competitor it would be. So netted out to there not being a really strong China hawk lobby until China actually got a lot richer and started getting more geopolitically ambitious, started started drawing more nine-dash lines on maps and um, telling more U.S. companies to... Uh, to follow their preferences with respect to whether or not Taiwan is an independent country. Trade deficit reflects a lot of different things. It reflects the demand for U.S. dollar as a reserve asset. It does reflect the fact that the U.S. is still a good place to invest, like it's still a good place to run a business. So um, in some sense, 
since we're a rich country with a lot of manufacturing, we should be net exporters. But in another sense, if we're a country that is a good place to invest in, has better institutions and can attract and develop more human capital than the rest of the world, maybe we should be running a deficit because we're, we're still the best place to, to put your money, whether it's your safe money in treasuries or your risk capital in startups. So in that sense, you're right, trade deficit doesn't matter as much. You can also break down the trade deficit a little bit more by looking at what we import versus what we export. So there are some products where we actually export some of the higher value added parts and then we import something that is assembled, which is a low value activity. And, um, and so most of the value add or most of the deficit disappears when you look at the profit margins versus looking at the end sale price for the product. Now, in, in terms of China, it's convenient that they, they do five-year plans. It's convenient that they have this Made in China 2025 plan. They're, they basically tell us where they think the opportunities are. Um, I don't know that they... I don't know how much of those plans are totally serious, how much of those are misdirection. I would expect the plans to include more misdirection in the future. But you should essentially think of us as the, um, us as the incumbent, China as the challenger. And so you'd have to look at industries or sectors where China doesn't have a comparative advantage today, but could build one if they were willing to invest a lot. And then you have to be sure to match that investment tit for tat. Um, to some extent, we're already doing this. Um, there have been more policy tilts in the direction of not just defending the U.S., but specifically counterattacking China. But, but um, then the other, the other piece of trade policy is which country has more to lose, which country is less stable. China right now the Chinese Communist Party derives their political legitimacy from the fact that the economy is growing. Whereas in the US, um, certainly you can get voted out of office, but people don't really question the whole system if there's a recession. So I mean, maybe 2008, uh, that's, that was a big one. Some people did question the system, but people still voted for, after, after the 2008 crisis, the next guy they elected had been a senator before that had spoken at the convention. Um, so he was, in some sense, pretty establishment. Um, he had gone to Harvard, just like George W. Bush. So in some ways, we didn't question the fundamentals of the system at all. We said we want a different member of the establishment to govern this country, but it should still be the establishment. Um, in China, if they actually had a recession as severe as 2008, I don't think people would say that we should reshuffle the, uh, the central committee and have have this slightly different allocation of responsibilities. I think that uh, there'd be more of a risk of just wholesale change. And China China's leaders are very cognizant of that. They're very cognizant that they have a levered system, that they have a country that's aging a lot faster than the U.S. is, that they're, they have some comparative advantages in a couple areas, but they don't really have a lot of globally successful companies. Country or companies the way that many other countries do, so they they are vulnerable. There's there's a point at which they won't be nearly as vulnerable, but it's not now. So, in that sense, Trump is um, is a good negotiator because he's pretty erratic. So they can't really prepare for all the reasonable things that he could do because he might do something totally unreasonable in response. And um, on that point, the general my general theory of Trump is that he is. Um, 
he's exceptionally good at evaluating the weaknesses of others. If you look at a lot of his history as a businessman, um, he's, he doesn't have this great record of taking something that's working okay and making it slightly better. He's, he's either A, buying something that is just a disaster area and fixing it up, or B, he himself is the disaster area and he <laughs> makes sure that the, the lenders are more scared of him defaulting and going bankrupt than he is. So in that sense, like if you think that the, the system, the U.S. globalized system is just drastically overstretched, that we have a lot of the obligations of an empire, but we don't actually have the means to support those obligations and we're not actually getting the benefit that, that we could potentially get from that, then someone whose only real strength is identifying weakness is actually exactly the person who you'd want to, to downsize things. When, are, when is he going to hire you for the campaign? <laughs> <laughs> that's that's the most reasonable uh, explanation for how how it can make sense I've ever heard. Uh, we'll see. Yeah. I haven't gotten the call yet. Yeah, exactly. Um, the so you recently have come out in, in favor of, of charter cities. Uh, what um, should charter cities look more like companies, or, or do you have a framework for thinking about uh, optimal governance for for maybe different uh, scale or different uh, culture or different types of place? Well, it, it sounds like a cop-out, but one of the things I've learned as I've gotten more involved in this is how dependent any charter city or similar development is on exactly where it is and exactly what the needs of that government in that country are. There's, there's a different approach in different places. Um, it's different whether it's top-down or done to the province level. It's different if the country has a lot of natural resources and it has um, has less industry other than that versus a country that just doesn't have a lot of industrial capacity in general. So it tends to be this really open-ended question where you almost want to think of it from a sort of common law perspective where you're you're not trying to build these top-down systems that can apply everywhere. You're trying to get as adaptive as possible to local circumstances. So the way a charter city will work in um, in East Africa is different from West Africa. The way it would work in, um, say, Southeast Asia versus the Caribbean, it's going to be totally different. It's it's all very dependent on what the adjacent opportunities are. And those are really hard to see because there's this sort of efficient market thing going on where if there were a really obvious opportunity, somebody would have taken advantage of it. So if there's some untapped natural resource in a country in Africa, your first question is, why hasn't China de facto seized control of this? Or why isn't there a, uh, why hasn't the government already tried to develop it themselves? You always have to figure out what was missing before you you try to build something to to solve the problem? So um, the, I did invest in a in a charter city company, and um, the founding team they just they spend a lot of time flying to uh, a variety of countries and talking to people on the ground, whether it's in government or just regular people, trying to understand what is missing for this country. Like you can't, you can't just say if this country had U.S. style institutions, it would be, it would have a U.S. GDP per capita. Um, one of the great case studies and why that doesn't work is India, where uh, there's a recent marginal revolution 
post linking to a, a more detailed discussion of this, but their, their government has copied a lot of environmental and labor and business regulations for much richer countries, but they don't have the budget to enforce them. So you end up with this system where anyone who's getting anything done is violating a lot of the rules. There's immense regulatory discretion to shut down or protect preferred companies just based on who you want to uh, who you want to call to account. So you do need the institutions to evolve, and they have to evolve alongside global norms or alongside local norms. Is the is the model for thinking about how charter cities are going to become a thing over over time or become mainstream over time? The, the sovereign individual model would basically uh, technology, in particular encryption, changes the logic of violence from it being. Uh, cheap to attack, cheap to seize or cheap, you know, or, or, sorry, expensive to defend uh, to cheap to defend. And over time, a person can have the, the protection uh, that uh, was typically uh, relegated to, or that we typically, you know, outsource to, to nation states to, to, to guard for us. Is, is that sort of the model of how, how it's going to transform or how do you see it? Um, I think any, anytime your business model involves explicitly or implicitly competing with nation states, in the domain of having a monopoly on certain kinds of violence, your model is doomed to fail. Um, the sovereign individual stuff is really fun to read about, but it's it went from fun in an inspiring way to fun in this very retro, like, yeah, that's how we thought in the 90s kind of way. Whereas it just turns out that the that countries are they're able to you to deploy overwhelming resources against someone who's an actual threat. So there's this this concept in privacy where you have you have different levels of privacy, um, and the level of privacy where you're defending yourself against a nation state is uh, is really not attainable. Like there's there's not an encryption scheme you should use or a special hardware you should use if that's actually your threat model. In that case, your threat model it, your the best thing to do if that's your threat model is do not do anything to upset the nation state you live in or if you're living in a country that is remotely friendly to the US or China, you know, still don't upset those countries. Um, people, people tend to underestimate this because governments are in many visible ways just broadly incompetent, but there, there are competent people in these governments and when they see something as a meaningful threat to them, they definitely respond with just overwhelming force. And if, um, if you state that your model is something that's competing with governments in this way, or you actually have a plausible claim to be a sovereign individual, then um, that does make you a really important threat. So you, um, like your, your best case scenario is the, the Bin Laden option, where you just have this extremely depressing life where you're waiting to get killed and then you get killed. Um, that's like your best case scenario if, you're that, if that's your threat model. But the actual scenario is you get caught very early or you get totally cut off from the global financial system and you starve or something like that. Um, in general, I, I just view, I have a healthy respect for the nation state as a way of organizing human behavior. It, it may disappear at some point, but very unlikely to happen in my lifetime, except in really, really limited incremental ways. Do you think the tech lash is happening because fundamentally uh, technology is uh, and, and technology companies are becoming are unbundling and becoming threats to the state, or or or, or is that too grandiose uh, or, or generous of why the tech lash is happening? 
I think it's happening because technology companies are becoming a bigger threat to the media. Um, there's just not a lot that Facebook can do that's a threat to the state. Like Apple theoretically comes close by not unencrypting phones, but there's that actually is just not not a hugely significant issue. A lot of the um, a lot of the people that we're worried about have either a really bad opsec, so they'll get caught some other way, or b they are actually really mentally ill and they're they're going to snap and it's not going to leave any kind of digital trail. They're just going to uh, going to commit some act of terrorism. So, in that sense, I don't really view. Apple's attitude towards encryption as a meaningful threat to the sovereignty of the U.S. government, and um, the other companies are even less so. But the media are really important. There's there's one sense in which the media function as a sort of de facto electoral college, where you you choose the media outlets that are going to outrage you in the way that you really enjoy being outraged, and then you respond to that by voting for the people those media outlets like. Like it's it's this back and forth process. You can't just meme yourself into being a Bernie bro or a Trump supporter or something, but you can sort of decide which, which of those niches you're going to fall into. And you can choose a media bubble that is totally compatible with that. Where Facebook and Twitter and YouTube get dangerous to those companies is that they do provide this counter elite narrative, but it is a low status narrative. Like saying, I read something on Twitter about X or God forbid, I saw a YouTube video that was a really persuasive argument for X. Like that is super low status to someone who gets all of their opinions straight from the New York times. Um, New York times has better production values. It's very prestigious. It's text. It, it just, you don't read it. Well, you can read it on your phone, but you could also read a literal physical copy of it. So it's just way up there on the prestige scale. But the, the big media companies do realize that, that role is being threatened. And um, because a lot of the people at media companies are just not that technologically savvy, they, they do lash out in ways that don't make a lot of sense to people who are actually in tech. Um, weirdly, they're, in some ways they're getting better because they are hiring more people, more, more programmers or more people who at least spend a lot of time adjacent to the technology industry in the technology industry. So in one sense, they're getting better, but in another sense, they're getting worse because a lot of the people they're getting are also fairly resentful of how, how successful and powerful the tech industry is. So you still have this dynamic where you know, people are more informed, but they're also more biased. And either way, the net result is that a lot of big media companies are really going after tech companies. Some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't really. And then there's a whole different political dynamic. There's like this weird axis, weird political axis where you have sort of establishment center left saying, we're deeply concerned that people might not be getting ideas from approved sources. And then you have this moderate to far right view of just these are really big tech companies that are all run out of San Francisco. They make all of their big decisions at these polyamorous ecstasy fueled board meetings at Burning Man and they're just not like us normal Americans. So we need to put a stop to whatever it is that they're doing. Um, I guess those are both somewhat exaggerated, um, exaggerated caricatures of how these people actually think, but 
that is, it's what's weird though is that both of those sides end up agreeing on things like we should probably be really reluctant to let a company have infinite scroll. We should be really concerned with what spending eight hours a day on a smartphone might do to the brain of uh, a 13 year old or a seven year old or whatever. So they do bring up legitimate concerns, but they bring them up from a somewhat biased angle. How do you see this playing out over the next uh, decade? How, how does the tech lash become resolved or what is the, the future of the, sort of the supply chain of attention to media look like? What I think happens is that a lot of big tech companies get less ambitious. So you can look at, um, you can look at examples like AT&T and Microsoft in, or AT&T and IBM in the 70s and 80s, where it wasn't just the fact of antitrust, it was the threat of antitrust that made them really reluctant to expand into new industries. Microsoft is a more recent and canonical example where they spent so much time fighting antitrust, um, antitrust actions, and so much of the trial revolved around internal strategy emails. And if you have someone as ambitious as Bill Gates, like Bill Gates is so ambitious that when he left his big company job, he decided to start curing diseases and solving other social problems. So clearly someone who wants to win no matter what. Um, when, when you ask someone at Microsoft to explain these emails where Bill Gates is metaphorically saying, we need to split the throats of all of our competitors, we must salt the earth where their headquarters stood, et cetera. Like there, there's no good explanation. You just have to say this was, this was um, clearly we, we did our best to violate every conceivable antitrust rule because we wanted to take over the world and we're really, really sorry, we'll never do it again. And Microsoft never did it again. They, they haven't taken over the world. They've ended up being an important company, but rarely an essential company. And that's actually put them in this weird position where they haven't really been hit with any of the tech lash. There's, there's no one who is totally dependent on, on Microsoft, even, even an office software. The people who are dependent on, on Microsoft software actually like it. Like Excel, um, one of Excel's big competitive advantages is the muscle memory of investment banking and consulting analysts who have spent so many hours rapidly updating Excel files that they've just become blocked with the machine. They're not going to complain about Microsoft dominating Office software. They're in fact terrified that they'll have to learn a new set of keyboard shortcuts, which could slow them down by like 5%. Yeah, it would be a disaster. They'll get fired. Um, so, so you don't have this strong political, act, political coalition against Microsoft, which actually makes Microsoft in one sense, the best positioned of the large tech companies. No one is really afraid of them. And um, somehow, perhaps through Stockholm Syndrome, some people have come to love them. You, um, we were talking about, um, we were talking about growth earlier. Uh, you've written a bit about Malthus. Um, there's this, uh, I, I consider Jeffrey West sort of a neo-Malthusian, uh, Malthus, when he says, uh, he, he says Malthus got wrong in that he didn't take into account uh, innovation and our ability to uh, and, and productivity. But what he got right was that uh, growth can't can't go on forever. That there will be natural limits. And and um, uh, Tyler Cowen says in response uh, that uh, yeah, but I'll take two thousand more years of it. Um, and uh, Andrew McAfee and others, you know, Andrew in his book More from Less, uh, say hey, no, we've decoupled consumption and resource usage. Uh, and so we, we literally, we can go, go forever. Uh, what, what's your take and how do you make sense of sort of the Neo-Malthusian take? Yeah. So it, it does get back to the productivity question and the fact that 
productivity growth, it's this broad measurement of a bunch of discrete improvements across a lot of different industries. Maybe the best example of this is actually, um, there's this wonderful book called A Great Leap Forward that's about productivity growth in the 1930s. And there's, there's no single industry that accounts for this productivity growth, but the 30s were actually one of the best decades ever for productivity growth in terms of output per hour. And it wasn't just because unemployment hit 25% and the least productive people got fired first. It was that like for like people got better at basically every job and there was still room to, to take um, certain kinds of infrastructure that hadn't been fully built out, things like... Um, electrified factories versus more traditional power sources. There, were, there was still room to get productivity growth from that. But just the, the picture of productivity growth in the 30s is not that any one thing happened, but that a lot of things happened at the same time. You could come up with all sorts of arguments for backing into that. Like one, one thing I've considered is just that that would have been around the time period where it started to look like math was getting close to being done. And so everyone who's really good at math had to switch to something else. A lot of them switched to physics. And so we ended up building nuclear weapons. But some of them might have switched to other kinds of engineering. We just had this big um, IQ dividend getting dumped into more practical rather than theoretical fields. So yeah, productivity, productivity growth is important, but hard to measure. Um, my view on Malthus was that when I looked at the... Um, I looked at fertility rates compared to crop yields. And if you look, if you average it by decade, the R squared between the two is about 0.65. So he was actually correct looking backwards at um, looking backwards at England at the time that he was writing. It was actually true that higher crop yields did lead to faster birth rates. What he didn't realize was that, that there would be these efficiency gains, that um, eventually one of the gains in efficiency would be that um, we stopped using food calories as a major input into agricultural labor. So switching from horses to tractors eventually meant that um, food was a lot more efficient from a calorie ROI perspective, at least if you're choosing dietary rather than energy calories. Um, I haven't done the math on whether it's good from an energy calorie ROI perspective, but I'm meeting too. So you can like you can point and laugh at Malthus because he he got the timing exactly wrong, but you can also say that he was making a reasonable extrapolation off the data that he had. So there had to be some new data point where if he'd written the same thing in 1750 instead of around 1800, he would have actually made a really solid prediction of how the next half century would play out, which would be pretty impressive by modern standards. I think if I read a book that was written in 1970 and in 1920, it said that China is going to be this like capitalist authoritarian country and going to have the second biggest GDP in the world, like that would have been a really astounding prediction. So predicting things 50 years out, really impressive. You you can so basically the way you get back to this neo-Malthusian view is um, I think of it as a meta-Malthusian view. So it's it's the view that any kind of successful institution is going to expand when it has a comparative advantage somewhere. It's going to expand when it can get a positive return on some kind of investment, and eventually its success is going to be defined by some sort of bottleneck, and. The, the bottlenecks are not obvious at the beginning, but they do become obvious over time. So with a lot of companies, for example, they grow really fast, but one of the bottlenecks becomes the fact that if a company is, um, if it's doubling its size every year, then half of the employees have worked there less than a year. 
and if it takes more than a year to get someone to fully adapt to the culture and more than a year to figure out if they're really a good fit for the company, then over time, the company's culture just dies out because most people are not really part of it. Um, you can have companies where they grow for a while and the limit is distribution. And if they've saturated AdWords and saturated Facebook's ads and saturated every major ad platform and there's, there's nowhere else for them to go, then they're just, they're stuck. Or you can have cases where a company can grow as long as they're not a threat to someone adjacent to them in the supply chain. As soon as they're a threat, that company squashes them. This happens to a lot of travel companies where they grow because they can send a lot of traffic to Booking.com and Expedia. And then when Booking.com and Expedia get worried about them, that, that traffic and that revenue goes away. And then the story is over. So you never, you never know upfront what those constraints will be. In Maltes's case, he thought the constraint was just birth rates are going to naturally cause the population to always converge on the carrying capacity of land. He just didn't think it was plausible that the carrying capacity could rise faster than the maximal birth rate. And he also assumed that birth rates would remain responsive. But there were some of the trends that caught him flat-footed were actually sort of, um, sort of correlated with one another. So if you shift from an economic model where a lot of people do manual labor to produce food to an economic model where a lot more people are doing skilled labor, you actually have this longer period of investment before someone is productive. And um, a lot of people don't form households and start having kids until they're economically productive and can stand on their own. So if you go from this model where you start working on the farm as a young teenager and then you just keep doing that for the rest of your life to a model where you have an apprenticeship, you actually aren't doing anything especially valuable, so you don't get paid very much at all. And then at some point in your 20s, you can start your own business, but you don't have any clients or any real reputation, so it takes a while to get started. That can delay marriage long enough that the, the fertility window shrinks. So in some ways, that the model where you have higher productivity is also a model where you have higher investment in human capital. That human capital investment takes time, and that time takes time out of the window in which you could be having kids. So he was sort of wrong in two directions, but it would have been really surprising to read anyone writing at the same time as Malthus saying that really the reason Malthus is wrong is that so many people are going to go to college and get degrees in, um, in fields that are very lucrative, and thus they won't be having kids at 20. They'll be having their first kid at 25 or 30. The, uh, we were talking about uh, the uh, globalization protests. Another protest, of course, was, it was Occupy Wall Street. Uh, and I'm curious if, if you think they were uh, advocating against their own interests, uh, you know, unwittingly. Uh, and more broadly, uh, what, what is the what is the role for 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 Wall Street? What what is the case for why it is uh it is it's good for society in a way that Silicon Valley is good for society? I wouldn't say the Occupy people were really fighting against their own interests. I would say they were they were late. Um, the time to protest Wall Street was 2006 and 2007. It's it's this classic finance story, actually, of someone being able to articulate this really, really elegant bear case for some institution after it's dropped by fifty percent. Like, good job, you you have you were consensus five years ago. Your consensus today, um, not a huge value add. Where they were right though was that finance has this huge impact on the U.S. Um, that 
finance is just a share of corporate profits and as a share of market value had gotten way out of line with historical trends. And it becomes this, this self-fulfilling prophecy. So you actually, and this is, this is a frustrating thing about the, the U.S. financial markets over, over the last 20 or 30 years is that we actually end up recreating the stories that you read about um, much less functional countries where there comes a point in the life of a lot of, um, a lot of countries where they have a growth story for a while and then it collapses where the growth story ends up being a story where GDP is driven by construction and by lending and um, by building airports and by building luxury hotels. Like your economy, you can put up really good GDP growth numbers. Like this is, this is sort of how, how Thailand looked um, in the 90s. But ultimately, the GDP growth is all from people spending money in the expectation that other parts of the economy will grow. And sometimes that growth can crowd out other parts of the economy. So if you're building all of these enormous, beautiful, gleaming skyscrapers and the construction companies are outbidding factories for the skyscraper labor, well, those, fact, those, those skyscrapers are supposed to be filled with the bankers and lawyers and consultants who service the actual industry of the country, the uh, the actual manufacturing and logistics and stuff. And if that stuff is dying off, then there's nothing for, for those white-collar workers to do. So a lot of countries have had to balance that out. In cases like Japan and South Korea, um, I'm less familiar with Taiwan, but I know in Japan and South Korea, they were really cautious about having open capital markets. They really wanted a... Um, banking rather than bond and equity centered financial system because the banks they were able they were better able to control them they were better able to make these incremental macro prudential adjustments to the money supply and the availability of credit in response to outside shocks or in response to new changes in in their goals and needs you you do get a lot more access to capital if you have an open financial market but you can end up up in this case where the capital is actually distorting the underlying narrative on which that flow of capital is based, and then things rapidly, rapidly overshoot. So in the U.S. in the 2000s, one of the really interesting dynamics at play was that we were running this huge oil deficit. Most of the countries that exported oil, they didn't really have anything else to do with the money. They didn't have any good domestic investment opportunities and they didn't want to let their currencies appreciate. So they would actually sell oil for dollars, keep the money in dollars, and then invest it in something. So think the sovereign sovereign wealth funds of Saudi Arabia or the UAE or Qatar or places like that. A lot of those um, a lot of those countries, they would invest their money in hedge funds. The hedge funds would have this mandate to pursue low-risk, steady returns. One of the best ways for them to get those low-risk, steady returns was to invest in um, in CDOs, in, in credit-backed, structured products. And in the U.S., the, the biggest incremental source of supply for that kind of loan was subprime mortgages. So um, then you get to the part where it becomes recursive, which is, that in the U.S., mortgage default rates have tended to cor- tended pre-2007 to correlate very strongly with housing price appreciation. So if houses are going up, people just continuously refinance. They don't actually default on their loans, even if they can't service them out of their own incomes. And then 
as subprime credit became more available, the, the main reason that housing went up was the availability of more subprime credit. So you have this situation where higher gas prices are a tax on American consumers, but those higher gas prices flow to the Middle East and then to London, New York, and Greenwich, and then to, um, this, then to New Century and, uh, and Washington Mutual and the other subprime lenders, and then to higher house prices and uh, more easily refinanceable mortgages. So people were able to withdraw home equity to smooth out their consumption. And that kept the U.S. economy humming, but it did mean that we were accumulating this liability and um, that we weren't actually prudently responding to the higher cost of inputs. And eventually, of course, the whole thing unwound, um, turned into a credit crisis, that turned into a funding crisis, the funding crisis turned out to be a much bigger deal, that um, significantly crimped consumption across the global market, um, certainly hit natural resource prices in a big way. And since the, um, a lot of the drop in economic activity was in places like the U.S. and Western Europe, it hit oil prices pretty hard. Um, China decided to do a huge stimulus program, uh, something like 15% of their GDP in 2009, like 6% in 2010. Um, so they were, they were spending a lot on um, just building materials, but they didn't have a lot of cars. So even though their economy was still growing quite fast at that time, it wasn't leading to incremental oil consumption. So we sort of had this rebalancing of, uh, of A, financial flows, and B, of um, raw materials consumption. And then we didn't exactly resolve the problem after that, but fracking, fracking incidentally solved the problem of the U.S. having these financial outflows that turn into dollar inflows that can theoretically cancel out such that American consumers just accumulate liabilities rather than cutting spending. Uh, what's something, is there something we haven't discussed that's underappreciated about how fracking determines uh, the future of geopolitics? Um, we haven't discussed it directly, but when the U.S. was dependent on energy imports, we, we did have to keep the Middle East stable. Um, we, just, we had a general interest in the stability of every part of the world with oil, and those countries also got more closely tied to the U.S. financial system because oil is priced in dollars. Um, a lot of the imports that they could buy with their oil money would also have been priced in dollars. So it did fuel a lot of globalization. Now that we're basically at energy independence, like we still import some, we export some, but that's more because of where the refineries are than because we don't actually have enough oil to supply our own needs. That does mean that if we do intervene in other countries, it's much more a choice. It's much less that we, we absolutely have to because there are only so many places with oil. Uh, there's, there's a place with oil called Texas, and it's right here. So um, we, don't, we don't have to intervene as much. But there is this momentum where if you were working in the State Department and Pentagon, you probably had plans for what to do given a revolution in oil-producing country X or its neighbor. And um, sometimes that institutional inertia means we act on plans that don't really make sense anymore. So we may be interventionist past the point where it makes sense, but at some point, maybe there will be some budgetary shock to the Pentagon, although I sort of doubt it. But um, at some point, there just won't be this institutional need to intervene as aggressively. 
Um, the U.S., as, as Zehan points out all the time, the U.S. is pretty financially autarkic. Like we, we're just not that dependent on external supply or external demand. We certainly import a whole lot of stuff, but we also make a lot of stuff. And a lot of the imports, they are just cheaper substitutes for stuff that we can make at home. We have a lot of the global brands that people in the rest of the world want to buy things from. And um, that hasn't changed very fast. In fact, if you look at... Um, if you look at Japan and South Korea, they do have global brands, but they haven't made that many new global brands in the last 20 years or so. I guess you've got stuff like um, Uniqlo maybe. But beyond that, um, that process has really slowed down. The, the roster of the world's most valuable and trusted brands is kind of ossified. And that's to our benefit. We just have a lot of those companies. So we might, like, it, it is a different... Like War for Oil was never a very profitable narrative, but War for Procter & Gamble is probably going to be an even less, less popular one and just an even weirder one for people to swallow. But we do sort of have this geopolitical interest in keeping the rest of the world on our currency system, um, in our supply chains, and um, in our cultural sphere. But it's, it's harder to defend a lot of that stuff militarily. That said, one of the one of the pieces of infrastructure that we built incidentally as part of this globalist sort of Cold War competition slash um, energy import-driven growth strategy um, from the 70s to 90s, one of the side effects of that is that the dollar system is just ubiquitous. So the U.S. basically has the freedom to um, to pronounce a financial death sentence on pretty much any company outside of maybe China, Russia, Iran, and North Korea just by cutting them off from, from dollars. Um, and we've, we've done that in pretty sweeping ways. Like there was, a, I believe, a transaction between a French bank and the Libyan Sovereign Wealth Fund where the U.S. Um, the U.S. was able to essentially veto that transaction, was able to punish the bank for that transaction because the bank had offices in New York. So technically, theoretically, everything they did fell under U.S. jurisdiction, even though it was not a dollar transaction and um, it was legal under both French and Libyan law. It, still, the U.S. could say no and could actually make plausible threats to, uh, to back up that statement. What's the uh, right way or wrong way to think about uh, negative interest rates or, or what's uh, misunderstood or underappreciated about it? So a couple things. One is that you do want to think about real rather than nominal rates. So um, negative, we've had negative real rates at various times in the past, and we generally didn't freak out as much about that. Like people would complain that, if, they're, if they buy a CD that yields 10% and the CPI goes up 12%, they're technically poorer. But um, there's this interesting survey I've been meaning to track down where people in 1980 were, there was a survey of people whose wages had gone up in line with inflation. And inflation had been running very hot in the 70s. So the survey just asked people, why did your pay double over the last 10 years, whatever the number was? And Nobody said inflation. People would say things like, I worked really hard and I learned a lot and my peers love me and I'm very valuable to the company. So in some ways, people are people pay a lot of attention to nominal rather than real prices. And um, economists always do this weird thing where they talk about some human universal and say, well, technically it doesn't matter. So we should actually disregard it. Whereas really what you want to say is 
technically it doesn't matter. So we need some kind of policy adjustment to deal with the fact that literally everyone in the world instinctively thinks that this matters. So um, negative nominal versus real rates would be an example of that where um, really there's no reason, there's no reason to say that, um, that today's negative real rates are that far out of historical norms, but the, the nominal thing certainly freaks people out. Um, what I would say is misunderstood about this is um, a couple things. One is that when you have low interest rates, one of the effects of this is that it means that the cost of procrastinating goes down if you're a borrower. So if you borrow a bunch of money to build some infrastructure project like a port or a tunnel or an airport or whatever, um, you're paying interest all the time. And if interest rates, if real rates are really high, then your incentive is to work all the time to amortize the cost of that capital over as many working hours as possible. But if rates are extremely low, there's no reason to work late or work weekends. I think this is, like, implicitly, this is what is going on with a lot of early stage startups where Series A capital is just murderously expensive. And if you are paying yourself your full-time salary, but you're working nine to five with a long lunch break and you never work weekends, then most of the time that money is just costing you money and it's not actually delivering any return. Whereas if you raise really expensive money and work insanely hard and then when you're raising much cheaper capital, like late stage capital or IPO capital, or if you sold out, then you can relax, then it's fine. So that, that um, reduction in the opportunity cost of time is important because it discourages the uh, it discourages rapidly building infrastructure, whether that's literal physical infrastructure like the ports that I mentioned, or it's um, software and research and um, productive capacity that acts as de facto infrastructure. So a lot of uh, a lot of the components of smartphones they're sort of infrastructure in the sense that you can build other products like a tablet or a drone or an IoT fridge or something much more cheaply because these components exist. So um, when there's less of an incentive to build that infrastructure, you have less of that infrastructure built. And that ties into the, the broad view of productivity, where if you have fewer of these one-time capital expenses that subsequently make everything a little bit more efficient, then you have less growth. Now, real rates are supposed to be, in part, a measure of expected future growth. So if the economy is growing really fast, you want to own equity. If the economy is growing slowly or not at all, you want to own the, the fixed income, the, the, the first claim on any given asset. So you want to own fixed income. So in theory, rates, um, rates are a, uh, a product of the expectation of low growth. But if they also cause lower growth, then that can be a vicious cycle. So then the question is, how do you actually kickstart growth? Like how do you, how do you, artificially um, raise inflation and or artificially raise growth such that the real rates creep up or find some way to somehow raise rates without causing economic chaos. Um, and then we get into the realm of thought experiments. Like in theory, one thing that would actually create long-term investable opportunities would be something like asteroid mining. Like if someone figured out some way to get palladium from an asteroid and get it back to earth and they did all the math and everything worked out and the cost was going to be like a trillion dollars it might be worth it and it would be a trillion dollar investment that would lead to economic growth so that would actually increase the demand for long-term risk capital which should 
bring up rates, but in a healthy way. Um, and the healthy way in this really high level economic theory would be that if we are, if more expensive capital means that we defer consumption in the present in order to get more consumption in the future. And the asteroid mining thing, it's, it's fun to talk about both because it sounds really cool because it, it sounds like something that could plausibly be one enormous chunk of capital spending that does yield a good return. But what should be happening is that there should be a lot of these much smaller chunks of incremental capital spending that also yield that kind of incremental return with spillover effects. And we've just seen far fewer of those than we used to a few decades ago. So, so how do you expect uh, uh, interest rates to play out in the next you know, five to 10 years? At this point, my view is that interest rates stay low for a long time. There's another piece that I, I didn't really talk about, which is um, the demographic piece. So the demographic that most wants to own long-term bonds is um, A, older people, B, financial institutions that are promising older people a fixed income or income in the indefinite future. So that would be um, pension funds and life insurers. Life insurers, they tend to have this, well, the way to think about life insurers is that um, if you have financial liabilities, they have a, a duration. So average number of years in the future that your liabilities get paid out. Duration, as it turns out, is also a measure of how sensitive your liabilities are to changes in interest rates. So it makes intuitive sense that if you have a, um, a if you owe a bond that it that matures a year from now, a 1% change in interest rates has a roughly 1% change on the value of that, the, on the size of that liability. Whereas a bond that's due in 10 years, since that's 10 years of 1% different interest rates, it's much more sensitive to changes in rates. So pensions and life insurance companies will try to be cognizant of duration. They know that if they, um, if they owe money and the average date on which they have to pay out their liabilities is 20 years in the future, that any drop in interest rates increases the net present value of that liability. So they have to own assets that also have long duration. And um, a lot of them, a lot of European life insurance companies, for example, they'll run with a duration gap because it's just hard to find long-term European bonds. And they hope that they can invest in equities, that equities will outperform the bonds, enough that they can still meet their liability through returns, even though they're not hedged on duration. But in a world where interest rates are zero for a long period, that implies that growth is pretty close to zero over the same period. And zero growth is really bad for equity returns. So the duration gap actually grows because they're losing money on the equity side and because their liability is perfectly sensitive to interest rates, whereas their assets are less sensitive to interest rates. Um, so this this gets into some some more balance sheety type of stuff, but it is a big deal because so many people in Europe and the U.S. are retiring on fixed incomes, and um, a lot of the entities that are supposed to pay out those fixed incomes are not really in a position to do so over the very long term. Um, in the U.S., we have a lot of underfunded pensions. Corporate pensions are doing um, relatively okay because they they are a corporate liability, but um, public pensions massively underfunded, like 1.5 trillion dollars underfunded, and they're taking a lot of equity risk. So 
they, they are actually betting on a world where economic growth returns to normal or productivity growth goes up. But if that world doesn't happen, they become even more underfunded. And uh, that is, that's a deflationary shock to the entire economy because that means that people who are retiring now have this expectation that they will get money. Um, people who are working now have this expectation that they will pay a certain amount of taxes. And if either the money doesn't go to the retirees or taxes go up for workers, either way, less money to go around. So it's an adverse shock. Uh, I don't know if it rises to the level of a bubble because there's no crazy optimism, but there's a lot of blasé lack of pessimism in that space. What's the right mental model for thinking about uh, financial bubbles or what's the most succinct mental model? Is, is it, uh, you know, my understanding of, of Carlo de Perez and, uh, and Alex Danko's model is, hey, bubbles are, are a necessary part of every technological revolution and they're good because they sort of, uh, they, they're the irrationality required to lay down the infrastructure for, for, the, for the following boom. Um, is that the right way to think about it? And if so, is there sort of a Tolstoyan, um, Tolstoy version of this where it's like every, um, you know, outcome of a bubble is alike and every, you know, cause of a bubble is different in its own unique way? Um. So I've given a lot of thought to bubbles over the last few years, and there are a lot of different models that each tell you something about the nature of financial bubbles. So you can, like, certainly it is true that a lot of bubbles, they involve a case where there's a known or there's a more measurable cost, a less measurable future benefit. And because of that, you can deploy arbitrary amounts of capital. So if there's, if the cost is low, then there's no way to deploy a lot of capital, so you don't have a bubble. Um, if the future benefit is known, then there's no way to have a speculative mania. So you have to have this combination of relative certainty that you can put a lot of money to work now and relative uncertainty about how much money will be produced in the future. I would say if you're, if you're taking the Tolstoy, um, the Tolstoy line, you have to separate mean reversion from um, inflection bubbles. So that almost but not quite maps to credit versus equity bubbles. In an equity bubble, uh, an inflection bubble like the 90s internet and telco bubble, the argument is the future will be very different from the present and you want to own equity in that future. You want to own a piece of whatever those residual cash flows are in the future. So you think that we're going to change the way that we shop, we're going to change the way that we communicate, we're going to change the way we meet people, that specific companies will do that and have a monopoly on the result of that. And so you want to invest in those companies. With a credit bubble, you're actually making the bet that for vague, unspecified reasons, the future is going to be exactly like the past, only more so. So if you were willing to make a subprime loan at 200 basis points above the prime rate for the same mortgage a year ago, this year you should make it 180 basis points or 150 basis points or whatever, that you should expect this gradual convergence in, in the spreads between assets of different risk levels. So with a lot of credit bubbles, it's, it's almost this index fund on the economy bet where you're saying that we don't actually know exactly how the economy will be different in 10 years or 20 years or whatever the life of this bond is, but we do know that however it changes, it will change in such a way that the people who owe us money will continue to service the debt with, with no, um, no perturbance in, in their cash flows over that time. So those are really 
different opposite bets. In a credit bubble, you get more of the same, whatever the same is. In an equity bubble, everyone tries to be different, but in a lot of cases, they try to be different by copying in a plausibly deniable way. So you end up with like five different companies trying to do toys and e-commerce, five different companies trying to do pet stuff and e-commerce, or like 20 different companies trying to do streaming video when almost everyone's on dial-up. Everyone is copying, but they all try to find some way to be distinctive. And then in a credit bubble, you often do have people who um, they claim to be copying, but they're actually doing a, they're copying, but doing a worse version of what happened before. So instead of building endless subdivisions outside of cities that are growing really fast, you build endless subdivisions outside of cities that are not growing at all. Or you build endless subdivisions outside of cities that are growing really fast because everyone's working in construction and, um, and mortgage brokerage companies and they're all buying new houses. And then people in the core neighborhoods of the city are all moving out because they don't want to live in a neighborhood that's full of construction workers and mortgage brokers. Um, so in some cases, like like Vegas seemed to be just this self-sustaining bubble where the, the thing that fueled the growth of Vegas was people trying to get out of Vegas. And um, the there was this enormous investment in building Vegas adjacent things that weren't quite Vegas. And all of that was just financed by um, structured um, credit uh, Sorry, um, structured credit products. Um, do you have a framework for thinking about decentralization and centralization or consolidation and deconsolidation? More particularly, you know, in, in a decade from now, are we look more likely to have, uh, you know, one language or tens of thousands of languages? And, and same with countries or currencies. And maybe not decade, but over the next hundred years. Like, do you have a framework for thinking about how these? you know, history suggests they go back and forth in, in some way, but it, it, what's sort of, sort of the, what's sort of the dynamics? Between yeah, we, we might've hit this inflection point on language where um, we're at the point where creating things, creating English language content is worth the capital cost because companies that create that content can monetize it effectively they can sell it for a lot of money in a rich country and for less money in a poor country and it may be that the distribution economics weaken and so the content the really expensive content is still there and um that would that would mean that there's just this this corpus of well-written english language content and well well-produced english language movies that become the classics and the standard references that everyone cites all the time thereafter sort of like with latin where when paper finally got cheap enough that people could start copying things onto paper. The things that were worth copying were written in Latin, so a lot more people used Latin, so it became the lingua franca, lingua franca for a couple different fields and was, was very sticky and durable for a long time. Um, it, all, it all seems to depend on the, the fixed versus marginal cost of production and when those different cost curves change. Um, for centralization and decentralization in general, the economic force in a lot of tech companies is that they they want one part of whatever supply chain they're in to be very centralized with them in the center and monopoly profits. And then they want everything adjacent to them to be very decentralized so they don't have any competitors to worry about. So you can you could expect a world that is not not predictably more or less centralized, but is more separated into alternating centralized and decentralized layers. And um, then, but you might also expect that world to look more decentralized because nobody with a monopoly wants to admit that they have one. Um, this 
like going back to the the IBM and AT&T antitrust cases that I talked about a while earlier, one of the reasons that those companies invested so much in R&D was probably just to keep their profit margins low, but to essentially bank money that they could then harvest later on when um, when antitrust laws were more relaxed. So um, in the 19, 1950s, 1960s, antitrust uh, enforcement was extremely vigorous. It it just got weird. Like companies would get in trouble for acquiring other companies that were not suppliers, not customers, and not in the same industry just because it was a big acquisition. So if you were worried about antitrust, you might say that that pendulum will swing back at some point, but not today. And for now, we would much rather report a low margin or decent mediocre profit margin and invest a ton in R&D to monopolize industries in the future when there's less antitrust enforcement. Um, AT&T and IBM both mistimed that. So if they'd managed to avoid antitrust action until the Reagan administration, maybe they would have been able to do a lot better in, in personal computers. Maybe we would all be paying huge licenses fees for Unix and Unix-based software, and it would all go to AT&T, and they'd be the first $2 trillion company ahead of Saudi Aramco. Um, you can imagine uh, an outcome like that where they just sort of mistimed it. But in that, that, ex- that does bring me back to the centralization versus decentralization point where you could have argued in the 70s that the economy is actually pretty fair and competitive because we just don't have that many hugely profitable companies, so there's not a lot of evidence of huge monopolies. But it turned out that, A, a lot of those companies had very bloated cost structures, and they were investing a lot in R&D, and some of that R&D was pretty worthless. And B, that they they, they were actually dealing with monopolies on the labor side, where um, a lot of the, these companies had to negotiate with unions, and the unions were actually getting a lot of the incremental profit growth from the company as a whole. That may or may not be good from just a a general social cohesion perspective or utilitarian fairness perspective. Like certainly it's easier to argue that someone working on the factory floor in Detroit should get a fifty cents an hour more, even if it means that someone at corporate HQ gets a fifty thousand dollar lower bonus that year. Um easy argument to make, but it does mean that there there were monopolistic concentrations of power in the U.S. economy that just weren't visible to people who were reading corporate annual reports. And um, when those big concentrations of power got destroyed by a commodity inflation, which just broke a lot of the economics that supported this sort of cozy union corporate relationship, B, by private equity firms buying up big companies, getting rid of all all the underperforming divisions, firing all the scientists, and then just keeping the stuff that generated a lot of cash flow and didn't need a lot of capital. That actually looked like corporate concentration. It looked like there are these shadowy companies based in New York that are just gobbling up every, every company they can find. But it was its own form of decentralization, especially since those companies, they weren't using their own capital. They weren't indefinitely long life corporations. They were actually partnerships. Um, they were structured as partnerships. So the structure was, we're going to buy a bunch of companies, we're going to fix them up, we're going to sell them all, and our investors get their money back. And just to complete that circle, a lot of the investors were entities like life insurance companies and pension funds who needed to put money to work in order to pay the obligations for people like unionized workers. 
So it was, it was this circle of life of centralization and decentralization. And the ultimate lesson was it's extremely opaque. You, you can have predictions, but you should not actually expect to be able to measure those predictions accurately in the future. That said, my ultimate prediction is um, probably leans towards more, more centralization just because there is more, there's more scale. It's especially, it's easier to scale a company up because the limits right now are people and a lot of the infrastructure is just available in arbitrary quantities at pretty stable costs. So you could expect a lot more people to try to create monopolies in that environment and some of them will succeed. So that does imply more centralization, but we, we just may not see it as that. Is that a Fukuyama-esque uh, declaration, uh, end of history-esque, uh, but in favor of, uh, of China? Um, it, the important thing about Fukuyama is that he had a question mark in the headline, at least in the <laughs> original article. So, <laughs> and we know that the rule for articles with questions in the headline is the answer is no. So... He's, he's kind of like a uh, Malthus figure where he had this really good view looking backward, although what he actually said was a lot more skeptical. He, he said, we have this huge array of reasons that this big cosmic conflict is finally resolved and that there was a particular winner, but we don't know if, like, was, is the U.S., is the post-Cold War U.S. designed to be the victor or designed to win? Those are very different things. The, some people say that uh, some of our conflicts boiled, uh, boiled down all the way back to uh, Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine. And to crudely summarize, it basically the liberal versus conservative view uh, about around human nature, i.e. the Burke, Burkean view that humans are, are flawed and institutions make us better and we need to preserve them or, or the vice versa, that people are great and individuals, uh, institutions oppress us and we need to radically reshape them. But I wonder if that's sort of a too neat of a, or naive even a uh, view of the world. It's more mistake theory driven in the sense that if we had the same assumptions about human nature, then we'd, we'd, we'd come to the same conclusions. And I wonder if, if the conflict is fundamentally more uh, conflict theory, i.e. we just want di different things and different values, and in some ways it's better obfuscating that because that's not a truth we can really uh, cooperate around. And, and, and the two people there would be uh, perhaps Jesus and Nietzsche, Jesus being sort of uh, you know, egalitarianism, first shall be last, last shall be first, and Nietzsche being sort of you know, uh, meritocracy, achievement, um, and, and really this idea of egalitarianism versus meritocracy. And, and you co-hosted the Progress Studies meetup, and I find sort of the new progress movement very interesting because it's trying to wrestle uh, progress away from the progressives. Basically, uh, I see progress movement is focused on meritocracy and economic growth and productivity, and progressive more focused on egalitarianism, similar to how the, the modern liberals wrestled away the term liberal from classical liberals, I, you know, wrestled it, you know, which was more about civil rights and individual liberties, i.e. meritocracy, uh, than egalitarianism. How would you edit my characterization, and how do you think about... Uh, reconciling egalitarianism and meritocracy if, if you also think that's a central uh, challenge of right now <laughs> all right so just to uh just to wrap up the last two thousand years of thought on <laughs> human nature into a a quick soundbite um yeah there, it, it brings up a couple points i would say that right now the progressive and conservative attitudes on human nature are very much in flux because progressives have more explicitly adopted this Puritan theology of man as fallen, um, as just intrinsically sinful, and it, like the, the best you can do is to acknowledge how awful you are. And um, 
but also treating that as a source of legitimacy for a subset of people who are not especially sinful. Like in a lot of ways, we're very different from how we were as a country or as a, I guess, uh, a populace 350 years ago. But people from Harvard are still saying roughly the same thing that they were then. They just slightly adopted it for a, a different cultural context. So in that sense, you could actually argue that uh, progressives are taking this fundamentally conservative worldview. Um, the center right in the U.S. seems to take the fundamentally pseudo-liberal worldview of um, of this perfectibility where like, if you take Bushian conservatism, it is sort of the idea that we can turn anyone in America into a really good rock-ribbed conservative, like Republican voting, barbecuing normal American, as long as they technically own a house. Um, that that view did not actually work out especially well. It was very, very expensive financially and didn't work politically. And then Bush was also assuming that um, that Iraq was maybe a, a couple bombings away from, or a couple, you know, a couple bomber, American bombers and rocket attacks away from becoming a perfectly functional democracy. So in some sense, we've we've sort of switched sides where, the conservatives do believe that people are perfectible and that institutions can hammer you into being a perfect, i.e. Republican voting person, and then um, progressives have moved against that. But in, in another sense, I just don't know that anyone is really thinking that stuff through, or equivalently, the people who do think deeply about human nature, their opinions probably just don't matter for broader political discourse. Like, it's, it's a fun hobby, to ask, you know, what is a human being? What makes us, what makes us human? What makes different people distinct from one another? But you're just never going to fit that into a viral tweet. So um, it may, it may be totally separate from the political process. Probably a tragedy. Maybe it was all a waste of time. Uh, I'm, I lean towards tragedy, but I, I recognize the possibility that human nature is fundamentally unknowable and that it's basically a way for that talking about it is just a way for people with high verbal IQs to show off. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, but progress, the progress studies, you, you had this, you mentioned this line that progress studies is trying to take progress back from the progressives. And I actually, I dispute that um, in two senses. One is that progress studies is and should be politically agnostic. We should ask the questions, how, how do we get more output from a given hour of a human being's time, rather than asking who wins, who loses, who was right, who was wrong, etc. But it's also um, not just nonpartisan, but actually anti-partisan in the sense that partisanship tends to arise when we when politics becomes more zero sum so the us was very nonpartisan in the middle of the 20th century because we were rich and we were getting richer so it sort of didn't matter that much if you wanted um tax cuts for the rich versus if you wanted higher minimum wage and better union protection we could actually afford both because we were um, we had the world's biggest and best auto companies and aircraft companies and um, manufacturing all sorts of nice consumer goods. Now it's a lot more rancorous because not only are we not sure that you can have a combination of 
low taxes on the rich and protections for the poor, but we're not sure if we can actually afford either of those, that we may be in this scenario where the, the big political question is who suffers most and who suffers when versus how do we divvy up these wonderful benefits. Um, hopefully we can reverse that. We do have these micro cases of progress, economic, rapid economic progress as such being fundamentally nonpartisan. Like um, you can view the space program as America's like, really, really friendly way of explaining to Russia that we can shoot a rocket anywhere in the solar system and hit our exact target. So, you know, we have a lot of nuclear warheads, so just think through the math on that, guys. But um, that that actually means that the the U.S. space program and the U.S. nuclear program are tied together, which means that it was that America had this dream team of communist nuclear scientists and Nazi rocket scientists all working together to make America great. Um, I think that's beautiful and horrifying at the same time, but it, whatever it is, it is extremely nonpartisan. And the fact that you can get the far left and the far right to cooperate on something patriotic is, um, is really impressive. It's especially impressive because right now, like the far left and the far right, they actually have, um, they have a lot of, they can do a lot of, uh, they can talk together a lot more civilly than either of those groups can talk to people who are closer to the center. Just Bernie bros and um, the Trumpist intellectuals, they have a lot more in common. They have the same contempt for centrist Democrats, the same contempt for centrist Republicans. They're both pretty politically elitist, but also populist. So there, there is a synthesis there, but what they're missing is the, the patriotic and progress-oriented element of that synthesis. So they're both a little bit more zero-sum, and um, they both have this, um, this sense of partial, partial affinity for America, but partial disdain for Americans, and you don't really see that in, in the space program. Except to the extent that um, this the space program was, I guess, just in physical terms, the single most effective way to get as far as possible from America that anyone has ever devised. But only in that extremely pedantically literal sense was it not a super patriotic, super American thing to do. It was also super super American in that the the way that most Americans experienced it was watching it on TV. So 1969, peak America. <laughs> Um, are we uh, are we peak California or peak uh, peak talking about uh, you know anti uh, SF or, or California more broadly? What's your what's your hot take there? Um, so I wrote a piece that you're presumably alluding to because you said peak California. It's called Peak California, and my point there was was not that California is in measurable decline right now. It's that California has lost the institutions that caused it to be such a great place to live and found a company that it used to have. So part of the way that plays out is that there's a housing shortage and a housing shortage means rents go up. They go up in line with cash comp, not equity comp. And that means that a company like Google or Facebook or Uber or Lyft, someone who has access to a lot of capital and is paying people mostly in base salary, they have a comparative advantage relative to an early stage company that is paying people rent plus ramen money and a lot of equity. So 
in that sense, high real estate selects against early stage companies and selects for later stage companies. Um, The fact that it's harder to make an early stage company work economically means that you have fewer people in this sort of, um, you can think of it as like the Silicon Valley middle class where they have a high enough net worth to invest in startups, but not quite a high enough net worth that they feel comfortable retiring. So they're by US and certainly by global standards, exceptionally wealthy, exceptionally fortunate individuals, but they don't feel that way. And um, Silicon Valley has this wonderful tendency to trick them into feeling like they're actually poor and underachievers and that they really need to start writing seed and pre-seed checks so that they can finally make their parents proud or something. But if it takes longer for companies to exit and if fewer companies survive to exit and if more companies that do exit exit through strategic acquisitions, like through talent acquisitions rather than through IPOs, then that whole funding mechanism starts to break down. Now, some of it has been patched over because there's just a lot more institutional capital for early stage companies. You've got YC, you've got the YC to top tier Silicon Valley uh, venture capital fund pipeline. So to some extent, that's being patched over a little bit. But then you run into the problem of you, you're basically taking... Um, so most of those top tier venture capital funds, they are run by people who've operated successful startups or at least operated startups before. But you are taking um, that wisdom and amortizing it over more companies. Whereas if you have the situation where a lot of people who start companies semi-retire and immediately start investing in other companies and advising them, you have experience that's divided over fewer companies and you have more idiosyncratic experiences And so you just have this more diverse startup ecosystem. So there are just a lot of forces that are causing California's tech environment to consolidate and to homogenize. The fact that so many companies are going through Y Combinator has made Y Combinator less of this outside insurgency and more of a more efficient version of Stanford, where Stanford spends four years on you, but really they just needed to send you the acceptance letter, introduce you to a bunch of your classmates, and then um, send you to a job fair at the end. Um, YC has realized that you can do that in a lot less than four months or four years, and that you, if you're doing a good job, you shouldn't take a fixed amount of money. Um, you shouldn't just price discriminate based on parental net worth. You should actually take equity. So they um, they managed to replace both. Stanford as a a vetting institution for elites and um, the Stanford Endowment as a a high-performing hedge fund that takes advantage of those elite connections. They turn that into the same institution and it runs a lot better. But now it has the same problem that that Stanford or any elite university would have where to the extent that it's successful, it enforces a monoculture. And if that monoculture overshoots how how effective some of those behavioral patterns are at actually building wealth or even living a good life, then it becomes a problem. So that's that's the broad strokes view on Peak California. Um, I I was careful to talk about that thesis in such a way that um, that I wasn't calling for a collapse in tech stock prices or collapse in funding. Um, the collapse in tech stock prices hasn't happened. Funding a little wobblier, but. Um, I do, I do think if you're betting on the next 10 to 20 years, you should bet on not Silicon Valley. But there's, there's no specific place that has nearly the same infrastructure. So it's likely that we, we end up with 
fewer really interesting consumer-facing tech companies and enterprise software companies, although it may be that San Francisco and Silicon Valley were crowding out a lot of other spaces that could have supported smaller regional growth hubs in other parts of the country. So it may be a good thing. Um, I'll miss it. I, I think the like current, current San Francisco and Silicon Valley for all of its problems is such a really cool place to be. It's very energizing. It is um, amazing to overhear so many people excited about building something new. So it's a tragedy that policymakers are letting all of that go away and that whatever comes next won't be the same and probably won't be as good, but it's, it is what it is. Uh, I want to name a, a, a few thinkers and and ask you if you have any interesting disagreements with with one of them. You can choose any one of them or none of them or, or multiple. Um, so we 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 talked about, but I'll bring back uh, Teal and Zehan. Um, uh, interesting disagreements. Uh, but the other four I'll mention are are Steven Pinker, uh, Nassim Taleb, uh, Tyler Cowen, and, and Paul Graham. Are there any non obvious interesting uh, disagreements that are that are worth uh, bringing up? <laughs> Okay, um, let's see. For for Zehan, I he emphasizes a lot of these geographic, geopolitical, demographic constraints to the point that he ends up having a very particular narrative that I don't expect to play out in the same way. Specifically, um, I think in his last book, he has this whole chapter talking about exactly how Russia's invasion of Europe will play out, but I just don't see it happening that way. Um, I think it, too many things have to happen in exactly the right sequence for that to work. Um, Teal has argued that real rates are, um, are very negative because inflation is underestimated. I don't think that is precisely true. And specifically what I think is that inflation as it's experienced by older people is substantially lower than inflation as it's experienced by the average American because older people are much more likely to own their own homes. Social security is CPI and their cost of living indexed. Um, they drive a lot less. They eat out a lot less and they also need fewer calories and they don't go to school mostly. So a lot of the areas of really high inflation are things that they either don't spend money on or have partially or completely hedged out. So um, I would, and I would argue that that's the population you actually care about when you're asking what the real rate on a 10 year treasury bond is, because those are the people who are interested in buying treasuries. Okay. Pinker. Um, Actually, I, <laughs> I'll cheat and say that Taleb's argument against Pinker is correct, that the, the distribution of extreme violence is such that the, the trailing mean is always, is always lower than the, the actual underlying mean of the distribution. So every new data point is um, potentially going to be vastly higher than previous data points, and you can think of that in more practical terms by thinking about a nuclear proliferation. It used to be a much hotter topic, but um, it's, it's very hard to unproliferate a nuclear weapon and um, B that a lot of the modern supply chain with respect to electricity and food and other essential and medicines, other essential goods, it's very tightly wound. Like we don't have very many, days of excess inventory. If you think about what would happen in, um, in New York, for example, if we, if we lost access to water or if there were an extended power outage, um, you, you think about that for about five minutes and then you Google phrases like, what guns are legal in New York City? 
Um, so I do think Pinker is, um, like Malthus, like other people we've mentioned, he is correct about what a linear extrapolation from the historic data tells you. In Pinker's case, what he's wrong is, about is the nature of that distribution. Um, who else do we have? We've got Taleb. So I think Taleb understates is the, the flip side. Well, what Taleb understates is the extent to which people actually get paid for taking open-ended risk. So if you look at the historical returns from various option writing strategies, those historical returns are positive. They lose money exactly when you'd expect to lose money. In Taleb's career, he was more, from what I understand, mostly a market maker, did pick up idiosyncratic risk when he could, did very well at the times when he, um, when those risks paid off. So if you're always accumulating those last tiny puts on the S&P and then 1987 happens, you do extremely well and you have a lot of capital available so you can be a market maker in size when spreads are really wide. So in some sense, he has advice that's actually really good for an options trader where you have a lot of access to the market and um, you, have, you also have an edge on market making as opposed to just uh, being a price taker. But it's, it's less good advice for the average person. In fact, I, I think the average person right now spends a lot too much, spends way too much time accumulating optionality and way less time taking actual risk. So you see that in a lot of lifestyle decisions. Like you can, you can view a decision of something like going to college that is a way to take optionality. Like if you, if you graduate from a good school, there are a lot of jobs that you can just automatically get or at least have a very good shot at getting. So that gives you four years to decide what you actually want to do with your life. And then if the job you take is investment banking or consulting, you have just agreed to wait even longer before you decide what to do with your life. Or if you get a, if you go to law school or business school, again, you're waiting to decide what to actually do with your life. And people tend to pay to accumulate those options to do something, but they seem not super inclined to actually do those things. You see that with um, the, the dating market as well, where people date pretty much indefinitely and they they sort of keep their options open, try not to be exclusive for a long time. If they're exclusive, they have to be exclusive for a really long time before they decide that it's a permanent thing. Or um, increasingly, people like structures of just either indefinite dating or polyamory. Like I know polyamory is, is a pretty niche thing, but it's also a growing thing. And the people with whom it's getting more popular are people who have an outsized influence on what's broadly fashionable in a decade or two hence. So. I just see, I see more people um, following Taleb's broad advice badly. Probably the vast majority of them are not even thinking about Taleb when they do this, but that we might actually benefit more from having people take the opposite side of the Talebian trade and uh, just make a bet that is going to incrementally pay off and perhaps be very painful some of the time. Because losing a lot of money really fast is just incredibly educational. It's really, really good for your, your moral fiber, your spirit. It's a, the financial equivalent of a cold shower. And um, we, certainly those of us who've been fully invested through the last 10-year bull market, um, we've gotten financially slash spiritually weak. As is uh, go, going all in on a relationship and having it, having it blow up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
that, that's, uh, that's also eventually good for your moral fiber. Very painful at the time, but. Uh, yes, any, any, anything on Cowan, Graham, or Teal, or should, should we wrap there? So I think I hit Teal with the oh, greats yeah. thing. Um, Graham, honestly, um, I don't have any significant points of disagreement with Paul Graham. I've, I've read all of his essays. I think I started reading him in like 2005 or something. So Paul Graham has been a big influence on me. And um, can't think of any really substantive disagreements. And um, I've been recently really impressed with the fact that he's just, he's writing again and um, writing on issues that are not just technology or not just, um, not just sort of niche academic interests, but really on the nature of the good life. Because he actually seems like someone who's been trying to solve for the good life for a long time and has probably gotten pretty close. Really? And hey. then Cowan. Um, yeah, off the top of my head, I don't have any good disagreements with Cowan, but I, Cowan has this very widely diversified portfolio. He has wide diversification and tight stop losses on his intellectual portfolio. So if you read Marginal Revolution thoroughly, he will make a lot of points, make a lot of claims. A lot of them, these really incremental claims about like which... Um, I was, the last conversation with Tyler interview that I read had a whole section on which parts of India have the best pastries and why that is. So um, like probably your life is a little bit better if you know that than if you don't, but not a huge material opinion to have. And because Cowan often emphasizes the either the Straussian reading of something or asked to solve for the equilibrium, um, there are a lot of things that are implicitly Cowan beliefs, but that he has not explicitly stated. And it's really unfair to disagree with someone over the thing that they have been reluctant to explicitly claim because they're probably reluctant to explicitly claim it for a good reason. So on, uh, on both Cowan and Paul Graham, I will decline to disagree. Uh, that's, a, that's a perfect uh, place to, to wrap. Um, you've quite the intellectual portfolio yourself. Uh, ben, uh, Hobart, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, for listeners who enjoyed, I highly recommend checking out his writings on Medium uh, and his newsletter on Substack. Uh, and and, and uh, uh, let us know if there's anywhere else you, uh, you want to plug, uh, Vern. That about sums it up. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been one of my favorite episodes I've done, and I've done about uh, 500 of them. It's fantastic. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at villageglobal.vc.